0: Welcome to Freedom Online. We are indeed, as Tony said, we are so glad that you found us, so glad that you could join us. Tony, I was thinking as you were leading us in that last song, such a, a great, great anthem. I have a feeling that could be the theme song for the month of May for all over the country. Our chains are gone. We have been set free uh, as uh, we are seeing the restrictions of the stay-at-home orders being lifted. I have a feeling that a lot of our hearts are feeling a little bit of that, like the chains are gone and we've been set free Uh, We are grateful that we are at a place that uh, there is some additional freedom that's being extended to us, and I just want to encourage you uh, to be wise. uh, We don't want to uh, be crazy in how we use these new freedoms. Uh, We are very glad to say that so far as we know, the the Freedom Church family has remained healthy uh, throughout this entire season, and we want to see it stay that way. So uh, please do stay in touch with us. Let us know how you're doing. But please stay on the safe side of things. Let's not uh, go crazy as things begin to open back up. Uh, I always try and keep you sort of posted on what our extended family is doing. And and I want to say to those of you who don't live in the Baldwin County area, but who join in with us online, whether you do this live or catch us later in the week, I really would love to hear from you. I'm always grateful to hear from our friends who are overseas and in different parts of the country. Just drop me a quick note, a text, or an email to, to tell me, how you're doing to folks like Zoe and Laura in Germany and as well as our friends in other countries. We would love to hear what what you're seeing, where you're living. I'll give you a quick update that I did talk with Isaiah in Nigeria on Wednesday afternoon. Got to have an extended conversation with him. And things are starting to settle down some there now. The The extreme unrest that they had seen in the previous week or two, he said, is beginning to, the government's beginning to get that back under control. They can see some light at the end of the tunnel in terms of they're probably a couple of weeks away from the end of their stay-at-home order, and so they're excited about that and feeling quite a bit of relief. So anyway, good good news from Nigeria. Continue to remember them in prayer. We are in a series right now that uh, is about how we get through the hard stuff, how we get through the hard seasons of life. And today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn there with me. What we're going to talk about today is those times in life where life is particularly a struggle, where it just does not seem to make much sense. Wouldn't you agree that life really is a struggle and that there are certain seasons of life where it's way more of a struggle than at other times. And we probably would all agree that the current season that we're in is a real season of struggle. We're ready to be out of this. We're ready to be done with it. And unfortunately, we've probably got a year or two of struggle with this particular season still ahead of us. But the truth of the matter is we struggle in a lot of different ways. The Lord made it clear all the way back to Genesis 3 that because of the fall, he said, you're going to have struggles in life. And we struggle with a lot of different things. We struggle with the people around us. We struggle in relationships we struggle with ourselves and our own internal issues, but we also struggle with God. And today we're going to talk about all three of those, and we're going to talk about how when you're in the most chaotic seasons where life just does not seem to make sense, how you struggle through those and come out being blessed instead of being overwhelmed by those. And the character that we're going to be talking about today is Jacob. Jacob the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. And he certainly is a great picture for us of what it's like to struggle with God and uh, in some really interesting and unique ways. Uh, Jacob definitely struggled with other people. I said that's, that's the first obvious area that we struggle. Well, he definitely did that in spades. From the time he was in his mother's womb, the Scripture says that he and his twin brother Esau were wrestling with each other, and the Lord spoke prophetically about that and said, It is two nations and one one mother's womb that are wrestling with each other. And throughout his growing up years, he struggled with his relationship with his brother. He ended up struggling with his relationship with what would become his in-laws, particularly with his father-in-law. He ended up with two wives. And did he evermore struggle immensely with uh, the relationships that he had there? And by the way, I know that at times people will say some kind of silly things and try and defend it by saying, well, it's in the Bible. Like polygamy is in the Bible or slavery is in the Bible, so it must not be wrong. Let's remember that there are a lot of things that are in the Bible that God doesn't endorse, that God says explicitly that they're not how it's supposed to be. I mean, rape and and murder are in the Bible, too, and God's not in favor of those. God was never in favor of polygamy, but there were a lot of people who were guilty of it. Jacob was, and he suffered as a result. If you ever wonder what that would look like in life, read Genesis 30, and you'll get a good picture. But he struggled with his wives, he struggled with his in-laws, and he struggled with his children. Very dysfunctional family. He had favorites among his 12 sons and, and others that he wasn't so crazy about. So he struggled with people. He struggled with himself and we struggle with ourselves. You know, we, we want to think. Wouldn't you love to just feel like that all the problems that you have in life, it's because of the people around you. It's because of your husband or your wife or your kids or your, your parents or your siblings. But the truth of the matter is the bigger struggles we have are because of what we carry. We have insecurities and anxieties. We have hurts and, and hang-ups and, and addictions and compulsions that drive us. And Jacob certainly had those kinds of issues. He was a, a liar and a deceiver and a manipulator and, and at times just a runner. He would run away from his problems. He had had struggles inside of himself. And one of the the passages from the New Testament that so many people love because they identify with it so naturally. In fact, it is the probably more than any other passage in the 13 books that Paul wrote, is the one that gives us the the best glimpse at just the humanity of Paul because he comes across as such a a super apostle, such a a strong follower of Christ. But in Romans 7, you hear his struggle with himself when he said this, and see if you can't identify with these words. He said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Don't you feel like he's just telling your life story there? How many times do you see yourself clearly moving in a direction that you know isn't the right way, and you say, no, that's not where I want to go. I've got to change course, and you still stay on that same road. Paul said, I struggle with what's inside of me. Jacob did. We struggle with those things but there's a third major struggle that we all have and ultimately it is our struggle with God. Now most of us know that God loves us and yet we still struggle with the wisdom of God for our lives. And you may not think of it in those terms, but we absolutely do it. I mean, think about some of the ways that we do struggle with God and and wrestle with whether or not God's wisdom really applies to us. I mean, here's a common one in our culture. We know that That the word of God says God's standard for us is that when you're in a love relationship, that you save sex until you're married. And that's an absolute, that sex is to be saved for the marriage bed. And yet, we get in a relationship, and we question the wisdom of God for us, and we think, well, but we really love each other, and we're really committed to each other. So I don't know that God's wisdom applies in our situation And so we wrestle with God and we choose our own way or consider your finances. We know what the word of God says. It teaches us that the first tenth is a divine portion of all that we receive. And so we're to give that back to God as a tithe. That's something that we don't get to figure out what we do with it. It's to be presented as a part of our worship in the place where we worship. The other 90%? We can do what we want to with that. We can use it to help others. We can buy our groceries with it, pay our rent, save, go on a vacation. But the first 10% belongs to God. We understand that from the Word. That is the wisdom of God. And yet we question whether God's wisdom really applies to us. Because, you know, these are lean times. This is a pandemic. A lot of people aren't able to work. Would it really be wise to continue to give God 10%? And so we wind up wrestling with God over all kinds of issues related to career and relationships and future plans, does God's wisdom really apply to us? So we wrestle with God, and Jacob absolutely did that. Hosea 12.3 says this, As a man, Jacob struggled with God, and don't we all? But here's the peculiar thing about Jacob and his, his struggle with God, his wrestling with God. The passage that we're going to look at today is unlike any other passage in all the Bible because Jacob literally, physically wrestled with God. And there's a major lesson for us in this. We're going to look at a passage where the Lord Jesus apparently appears in the flesh and has a wrestling match with Jacob. And there's some profound stuff that takes place there. And so we're going to use Jacob's wrestling match as a, and what happens in that as an opportunity for us to learn how we wrestle through the most difficult seasons of life. So first of all, let me just summarize quickly for you Jacob's story. Jacob, as I said, was the son of Isaac and the, the grandson of Abraham. He's one of the patriarchs. When, when the people of God would identify the, the one true God whom they serve, they would say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's that Jacob. He was, his father was the child of promise that, that Abraham and Sarah waited so long for. Well, Jacob was the child of promise for Isaac. All of the promises of God are, uh, are, are going to be passed on through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has a twin brother, Esau, and they truly, they, they wrestled with each other from before the time they were ever born. When they were born, Esau came out first, and in that ancient culture, it was a big deal. Even if you were only born five minutes ahead of your sibling, whoever is the firstborn, they, they are honored in a different way. They, they are blessed in a different way, and they get Two-thirds of the inheritance. And so it's a big deal that Esau is going to be the recipient of that. These two sons turned out as differently as night and day. Many of us as parents can identify with this where you think, how in the world could the same family, could the same parents produce children that are so opposite? Well, Jacob and Esau were like this. Esau was born hairy. The Scripture says he looked like he had a fur coat on. He was such a hairy uh, baby and such a hairy man and such an outdoorsman. And Jacob, on the other hand... He was the more soft-spoken and quiet son. He loved to be indoors. His mom had him as as her favorite, and Isaac loved Esau as his favorite. And so Jacob was the one who loved to cook and be around the house. And so one of the things that happens as they're growing up, Jacob is jealous of Esau and the fact that he's the firstborn and that he's got the, the birthright and the blessing of that. And so one day when Esau comes in hungry from hunting and he's just famished... And Jacob's been cooking, and he's cooked up a stew, and, and Esau says, let me have some of that stew that you've cooked. And Jacob uses that moment to manipulate his brother and take advantage of, of his hunger in that moment. He says, well, I'll trade you. I'll give you a bowl of stew for your birthright. And Esau obviously doesn't take it very seriously. He says, oh, what's a birthright to me? Give me the stew, and he eats it. Well, Jacob takes that seriously, and from that point forward, in his mind, I'm now the equivalent of the oldest son. I'm the one who gets the double portion. And and when their father gets very old and is basically on his deathbed and he's now blind, Jacob, who always was that manipulating, scheming type, he and his mom concoct a plan to, to get the blessing of the father before he dies. It's a very important deal. It's not just words spoken, but there's going to be Real stuff that 's going to happen in life as a, as a result of of how Isaac speaks blessing over his son, he intends to bless his oldest son, Esau, but Jacob deceives his blind father and he winds up receiving the blessing and When Esau re- realizes that he 's been robbed of this blessing, he determines in his heart he 's going to kill his brother and so jacob 's solution is to run away. He runs away to another land uh, to where his uncle Laban lives, and, and there he winds up falling in love with his cousin Rachel and asks for Rachel's hand, and Laban says, Well, if you'll work for me for seven years as a reward, I'll give you my daughter in marriage. So after seven years, he's finally going to be able to wed the woman that he loves. And now the tables get turned on Jacob. He's always been the deceiver and the schemer. Well, his uncle deceives him. And when they have the whole wedding celebration, and he goes into the tent to have his first wedding night with his wife, he winds up not with the woman that he loves, but with her less attractive sister, Leah. He's the one who's been taken in, and when he goes to his uncle, now his father-in-law, furious about this, he finds out, well, too bad, you you get the other sister. But if you're willing to work for seven more years, we'll give you the other sister as your wife. And you can have her in a week, but you're going to have to work seven additional years to pay for her. And so he, he goes through all of this, but now he's saddled with two wives and they don't get along and, and they wind up having a lot of kids and the kids don't get along and it's chaotic and he's now working for his uncle slash father-in-law and, and his father-in-law is is really kind of cruel to him and the scripture says 10 different times he tries to rip him off in terms of his wages. Now the Lord's crazy about Jacob. The thing that is just so clear in the Old and New Testament is that God just had a particular love for for Jacob, in spite of his scheming, his lying, his deceiving, God loved and blessed Jacob. And no matter what his father-in-law did to try and mistreat him or to swindle him, God just continued to show favor and cause his wealth and his, his flocks and herds to, to expand. But finally, after 20 years of living in this foreign land and working for his father-in-law, Jacob has had enough, and the Lord gives a word to Jacob that it's time to return home. But Jacob doesn't do this above board. He doesn't go to his father-in-law and say, hey, I need to let you know I'm not going to be working for you. I'm going to take your daughters, my wives, and, and your grandkids, and we're going to return to our homeland. No, he, he does his usual MO, and and so he's deceptive, and he sneaks around. And, and when his father-in-law is distracted, he takes his kids and his wives and their their wealth and their flocks and they scurry headed back for their homeland. And a few days later, when his father-in-law finds this out, he goes in a hot pursuit, chases them down in the desert. And there's this whole conflict that might have cost Jacob his life, if not for the fact that the Lord intervened. And on the night before Laban overtakes Jacob, he basically says to Laban, you don't lay a hand on him. This is my, my man. This is my favored child. And so you, you leave him alone. And so there's just this awkward confrontation there. And, Jacob and his wives and kids and and their flocks and servants managed to get away from this. But now as they're getting closer and closer to home, the reality is setting in for Jacob. I'm having to go back now and face my brother who I have not seen in 20 years. And the last time I saw Esau, he was so angry at me that he was determined to take my life. And we've had no contact since then. So I have no way of knowing if his heart has changed at all. So he sends a spy ahead. This is what a manipulator would do to go and scout things out and to give the advance word that Jacob is coming and to see how Esau responds. Well, Esau immediately calls together 400 men who were under him. And they come marching out. This is while Jacob's still several days away. They come marching out to meet Jacob. And so the spy comes scurrying back to Jacob and says, Oh, bad news, boss. Esau heard that you're coming, and he has now marshaled 400 men. It looks like a small army coming out to meet you, and Jacob is in a panic. What am I going to do? Obviously, Esau has has just been nursing a grudge for 20 years, and he's come now to kill me. And obviously, with 400 men to kill my servants, my wives, my kids, this is going to be a bloodbath. And so, Jacob's trying to figure out, how can I take control of this situation? And he comes up with the idea, maybe I can bribe him. I'll send him gifts. And so he starts pulling animals out of each of his different uh, herds of different types of animals. And he'll send a servant with each little flock and say, take this to Esau. And when you meet him, say, this is, is from my lord Jacob. He brings this as a gift to you. And so he sends him all of these gifts. And yet still Esau continues marching forward with his 400 men. And Jacob is just... In, in agony, wondering what's going to happen, is he about to lose his life? And so he finally gets to the place that they reach the Jabbok River, and in desperation, at the last minute, knowing that he's going to face his brother and these 400 men the next day, he has his family, both of his wives, all of his children, his servants and flocks, cross the ford and the river, get to the far side, and Jacob remains alone. I guess he's thinking at this point, maybe my brother will settle for just killing me and my family. Maybe they can escape. And so Jacob spends a night alone, the only one on this side of the river, waiting for kind of judgment day to come the next day. And that's what we read about in Genesis 32. We're going to just pick up in verse 23 at that point in the story where it says, Jacob sent his family across the Jabbok River, but he stayed behind alone. And that night... A man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. The translation I'm reading, the word man is capitalized because it's not a human. It is God in human form. Apparently the Lord Jesus himself has appeared. As we're going to find out later in the passage, Jacob makes it clear that it is God himself that he has wrestled with and seen face to face. And when the man saw that he wasn't winning the struggle, he hit Jacob on the hip and it was thrown out of joint. And the man said, let me go. Daylight is coming. Jacob said, I won't let you go until you bless me. Now, this is a strange scene, unlike anything else we've seen in all the scriptures. Jacob is having a wrestling match with Jesus. Can you just begin to fathom that? I mean, this takes the cake on anything UFC has ever produced. I mean, can you just imagine Jesus getting an arm bar on you? Jesus putting a rear naked choke on you? I mean, who's going to be able to out-wrestle Jesus? And yet Jacob wrestles all night long with Jesus until daybreak. It is an unwinnable fight. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you get face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Jesus, and you're going to pin Jesus? Some of us are living living in a place right now where you feel like, you're wrestling with something that's an unwinnable situation. Maybe it's a, a habit that you can't conquer and you feel like it's just completely conquered you. Maybe it's a marriage that you feel like has just died and there's no hope for it and you don't know where to turn. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's a disability that you feel like you're going to be stuck with for the rest of your life. Maybe you feel like that you're in a, an unwinnable situation. What do you do with that? What on earth is going on in this story that we're reading? What can we learn from that? Well, I'll tell you in the story what I believe is happening. God is doing the thing that he does over and over again, and that is he is showing up in a unique way in Jacob's life that is specific to what Jacob needs. It's amazing how God will still do the same thing for us today. God will show up in your life in ways that he hasn't shown up in my life and vice versa. God knows what my needs are, and God knows from my personality and my experience how I need for him to show up. Just as a for instance, you think about Moses. God showed up and spoke to him through a burning bush, and yet none of us need to look for burning bush experiences. There's no one else in the Bible and no one else we know of in history that God showed up through a burning bush to them. That was unique to God's relationship with Moses. I don't know of anybody else who got to have a wrestling match all night with Jesus other than Jacob. But it's what Jacob needed because this wrestling match was the embodiment of what had been going on for years, for decades in Jacob's life. Jacob has wrestled with every person in his life. He's wrestled with his own issues and he's ultimately been wrestling with God. And when Jesus shows up in the tent... And literally, skin on skin, begins to wrestle with Jacob. There's an unspoken message in this. Jacob, you've been wrestling with your wives, with your kids, with your father-in-law, with your brother. But ultimately, what you need to realize is, you're wrestling with me. When I was in middle school and high school, one of the more unusual experiences that I had is the the coach that I had there. Uh, He would... At different seasons of each school year, uh, he would have us boys all learn to wrestle. I mean, not not just like WWF kind of wrestling, not wrestling, but, but truly wrestling like what they do in, in college or uh, in real sporting events. And I have to say, it was unlike anything else I've ever done. I've always played team sports, you know, baseball, football, basketball, that kind of thing. But wrestling isn't at all like those things. It is by far more personal, and more exhausting than any other sport that I've ever been around. Now, I wouldn't pretend that I ever got to be good at it. I did learn enough about wrestling to to know this, that wrestling is all about control, manipulation, and ultimately forcing the other person to submit. In wrestling, the way that we were taught to do it, you always start from a particular position. It wasn't the kind where you face off. You, you would always start where one person would be on their all fours and the other person would be next to them on their knees. And one arm, the beginning position, one arm would be wrapped around them. You'd be in the superior position. One arm would be on their, just below their shoulder. And that would be the go position. And from that position, you knew moves that you were immediately supposed to make if you were in the superior position you knew the first thing that you were going to do is slide your hand down to their wrist pop their arm out use your head to slam their shoulder to the ground and then from that position you were going to pin their arm back manipulate them flip them over and force them to submit that's what you were going to start out trying to do wrestling is about manipulation control and submission and that is a picture Of what Jacob's life had been all about. He was a manipulator who always had to be in control. And who was never willing to be the one to submit. And so he has to go toe to toe with Jesus. And it's all about control. Jesus could have pinned Jacob in a flash, but he didn't. He let this thing just play on out. Giving Jacob an opportunity to to recognize what's really going on here. What what Jesus is trying to show him about himself. And one of the things that I want you to recognize about this whole encounter is God does not have a problem with us wrestling with him. I want you to think about that for a minute. God doesn't object to or get offended by the thought of you and me wrestling with him. In fact, he knows going in that there are going to be times that are unpleasant, they're confusing for us, they are painful for us, and so we fight back. We, we wrestle with Him. We don't want to yield to what is going on around us and in us, and, and so there's a wrestling match between us and God. What God can't handle, what God can't stand, is the opposite of us wrestling with Him, us choosing instead to just ignore Him. When life is difficult, when life is painful, and it's a struggle and we don't understand what's going on, when our response is to just pretend like God doesn't exist, to just turn our back on Him and try and just manage it ourselves, that's what God can't handle from us. He is perfectly willing to enter into the tent with us, to get on the mat with us, and to wrestle with us, because ultimately wrestling is the most intimate of sports. Where you really get face to face and skin on skin. And God isn't threatened by that in the least. So as they're continuing to wrestle, and now it's about to be daybreak. And Jesus, it says, the man asked, what is your name? Bear in mind, it's not because Jesus doesn't remember his name. There's always something to be learned here. What's your name? And he replied, Jacob. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob. You have struggled with God and with men And you have won, so your name will be called Israel. Yes, it's that Israel. He is the father of the twelve sons who would be the heads of the twelve tribes of Israel. What's going on here? Well, it's pretty simple. Jacob has lived his entire life as a manipulator, a deceiver, a controller. And God is showing Jacob that the heart of your problem is you. It's not your wives. It's not your kids or your father-in-law. It's not even your big hairy brother. The biggest problem you have is you. And the thing that needs to change is not all the people around you. What needs to change has to happen here and here. And so he begins by saying, tell me your name. Now, you have to remember that in the Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, names meant a lot. They weren't just a tag so we could remember what to call you. A name helped to define a destiny, an identity, a person's character. And if a name didn't fit that for a person, God would change their name. Not just in the Old Testament, but Jesus would do the same thing in the New Testament. And so it's really peculiar in a way to consider what Jacob's name meant. I mean, Jacob's a great name. We, we love that name. It's such a, a rich biblical name, and yet in Hebrew at the time, the name Jacob meant deceiver, manipulator. And so, when Jesus is saying to him, "What is your name?" He's forcing Jacob to to verbalize the most fundamental weakness in his life: I'm a liar. That's what my name is, liar, deceiver, manipulator. Wouldn't it be a lot of fun if every one of us had a name that identified our biggest sin, our biggest weakness in life? That'd be a blast, wouldn't it? Hey, folks, my name's Greedy. Meet my friends here. Lazy, lustful, insecure enabler. I mean, that'd be fun if we all just had to go by the names of our biggest weakness. Well, that was what Jacob had carried around. But the Lord says, We're going to change that tonight. We're going to change your name. We're going to change your identity. We're going to change the way you see yourself. We're going to change the way that people see you. We're going to change how you relate to others. And he says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to be called Israel. That new name was rich with meaning. It actually had two meanings. Literally, it meant struggled with God. Because that's what he had spent his life doing. It was a reminder. Yeah, I spent decades struggling with God. And I had one night that I struggled with God face to face in the flesh. And it changed my life. But the other meaning of that name is Prince of God. That's a great name change, isn't it? To swap in liar and deceiver for Prince of God. Why is that such a big deal? I'll tell you why. Because for God to change how we live our lives and how we relate to others, the first thing fundamentally in us that has to change is how we see ourselves. And in order for that to happen, we need to catch a glimpse of how God sees us. Part of what is so broken in so many of us is we have this horrible picture of of ourselves and of how we think that God sees us and how we think the most important people in our lives see us. And for Jacob, it's not hard to imagine how he saw himself. I stole my brother's birthright. I stole my brother's blessing. I've been lying. I've lied to and deceived my dad, my brother, my uncle. I've just been lying and deceiving all of my life. When he looked at himself, probably all he could see was a very wealthy, successful, lying, deceiving manipulator. And the Lord is saying, we're changing that tonight. I want you to see what I see when I look at you. I see a prince. I see a royal prince, a prince of God. I see you as my favorite child. And I want you to know, I'm pleased with your life. I'm not mad at you that you've wrestled with me. In fact, I'm giving you a name that acknowledges the fact you've wrestled with men, you've wrestled with God, but you have overcome. You've overcome your greatest brokenness, your need to be in control of people and situations. You've wrestled with me in this, but you have come out of it. Tonight is the night that changes your life. And you'll be a different man as a result of that. It goes on to say in the next verse, then God blessed him there. That's what he was holding on for. Isn't that a strange change that's taken place in this wrestling match? He, Jacob goes from resisting Jesus to wanting to overcome and overpower Jesus to now Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave. Daylight has come, and this is not ending, so I'm about to go. And all of a sudden it shifts, and now Jacob is no longer trying to pin Jesus and take control. He's just trying to hold on and say, don't leave me please don't leave me don't go if you've got to go please don't go without blessing me so god blessed him there and jacob called the place peniel saying it is because i saw god face to face and yet my life was spared that that name of that that he gave to that place peniel means face of god part of why this is such an important story for us is because It's the embodiment of what's going on with us. So many of us have struggled immensely with needing to be in control. And we've been willing to manipulate or deceive or just outright lie. We just won't give up control. We've been wrestling with God. And in this passage, we learn a lot about how to wrestle with God and end up blessed. And so I want to just share in the next just few minutes four things that we learn from Jacob in his wrestling match with God and from the scriptures as a whole about how to wrestle with God and get blessed instead of be crushed by the circumstances. The first thing is this. Be honest with God about whatever you think is unfair or painful in your life. When we talk about seasons of struggle, there's usually things going on in us or around us that just do not make sense. And so many times we get frustrated and exhausted by that and we get aggravated at God because we don't understand why these things are happening to us and why we're not getting relief and why when we pray about it nothing seems to be happening in our favor. And so one of the best things that you can do as you wrestle with God in these times is just be candid and honest and tell God what what bothers you and what doesn't seem right about that. One of the greatest examples in Scripture is in Job 13. I mean, is there anybody else in all of the Bible other than Jesus who is dealt a hand that feels so unfair and, and just unjust? Job hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, he's living his life so well that God himself says to Satan, Hey, have you noticed my servant Job? He's faithful to me in all of his ways. And as a result of that, he goes through a season of testing that costs him all of his flocks and his wealth, the lives of all of his children and all but three of his servants, and it cost him his health. He is in agony because he's covered in boils. He is absolutely miserable. And the three friends who have shown up to comfort him initially, given a little bit of time, they start trying to figure this out, and they decide, it must be your fault that you're going through so much suffering. How did you sin and bring this on yourself? And they've become a source of, of misery in his life. And so finally, in Job 13, Job just says, I've got to talk with God about this because Life is too hard, and it doesn't make sense, and I need some answers. And so in Job 13, verses 15 and following, Job says, God might kill me, but I have no other hope. I am going to argue my case with him. And so he does just that. And to the Lord, he says, tell me what I've done wrong. Show me my rebellion and my sin. Why do you turn away from me? Why do you treat me as your enemy? What do you hear in that? I just hear a man being honest with God. A man who is wrestling, not wrestling in rebellion, but just getting honest. God, I'm not going to just sit back and offer real spiritual sounding prayers. I've just got to tell you, I hate where I am. I don't understand it. If I did something to deserve this, I need you to show me what it is because I don't get it. What is going on, God? That's what Job is doing. I'm convinced most Christians don't have any idea that, that this is something that we can do, that's something that's invited, that, that it would be appropriate. We feel like it's wrong, and yet this type of prayer is actually one of the most common prayers in the Bible. Last Sunday I talked about how prayers of lament comprise 65 of the 150 Psalms, where Desperate men are just crying out to God honestly like this. A great example is David in Psalm 13. He is the author of many of these prayers of complaint. Listen to this one and see if you can't identify with it now or at some past time in your life. He says, how long will you forget me, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you refuse to accept me? How long must I wonder if you have forgotten me? How long must I feel the sadness in my heart? How long will my enemy win against me? Lord, my God, look at me and give me an answer. Make me feel strong again, or I will die. If that happens, my enemy will say, I beat him. He'll be so happy that he won. Some of us can identify with David there. How long? I'm curious, what is it in in your life that you are just sick to death of? You're tired of tolerating, you're tired of living with. And the cry of your heart, if you're honest, is just, how much longer? How much longer am I going to have to struggle with this? How much longer do I have to live in this? Oh, God, are you ever going to bring me to a place that I'm not in this financial pit, that my marriage is not in this dead place? How much longer am I going to have to struggle with this illness? How long, oh God? God isn't offended by this. He gives us scores of examples so that we'll have a better idea of how much he invites us to wrestle with him in this way, to be honest about what we're going through. But I want to be clear about something here, that there is a right and a wrong way to express our frustration to God. Israel, the people of Israel, when they're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land, they become a picture for us of how not to complain back to God because they don't do it in faith. You can complain and be honest and voice your frustration still in faith. Understanding that God is in control and God is good. We don't like our circumstances and we don't understand why God hasn't changed that. And we can voice that as frustration to God in faith, knowing that God is good and we can trust him. But the Israelite people show us that you can also complain against God and about God where it's not of faith. They complained with an attitude that says, we can't trust God with this. He's just going to leave us out here to die. We're loading up and going back to Egypt. We'd rather live in bondage than be out here and have to depend on God. That isn't complaining in faith. So we'll see in just a minute, Job and David and others, even in their most moments of greatest frustration, voice their faith in God. A second thing about how to wrestle with God is when you're wrestling with God and getting honest, appeal to God's nature. God, I know you're loving. I know you're just. I know you're compassionate. I know you're righteous. I know you're patient. Appeal to his character even as you bring your issues before God. Lord, I know you're generous, and yet I'm in desperate need. I'm out of a job in the middle of this pandemic, and I don't know how I'm going to feed my family or pay the, the mortgage or the rent. God, I don't know how I'm going to get through. I know you're generous, but I don't know if you're paying attention to my situation over here. I'm in pain. God, I'm We've longed for so many years to have a child, and now we're being told we're never going to be able to have a child. I'm so tired of being sick, God, and I know that you love to heal, that it's in your nature to heal. It's in your nature to give, and yet I'm still sick, or the person that I care about so much is still sick. I'm still lonely. Appeal to God's nature. Jeremiah gives us a great example of this in Jeremiah 12 when he says, you are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. So he's appealing to God's justice and righteousness. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? He's asking, asking good questions. Haven't there been times that you've looked around you and just felt like, Why is my life such a struggle? And other people who don't honor the Lord, who don't seek to serve the Lord, and they're just fat and And happy, they're healthy, they've got plenty of money, their kids are doing great. How is it that they're doing so well and I'm suffering when I'm trying to serve you, God? I know you're righteous, I know you're just, but I need help. Abraham used the same kind of appeal whenever he was pleading for God, when God had made it clear that he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he appeals to God saying, I know because of your justice and your love that if there are 50 righteous people that you wouldn't treat righteous people the same way that you would ungodly people. And so I know, God, that surely you wouldn't want to kill 50 righteous people. Moses does essentially the same thing in Exodus 32 when God is so sick of the rebellion of his people that he says, Moses, I'm going to kill them all. And I'm going to start over with you. I'll give you a family, and we'll create a nation out of that. I'm going to just do away with him. And Moses says, Lord, remember your love. Remember how much you loved Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You remember how dear they were to you? Because of your promises to them and your love for them, show kindness to their descendants. And so it says the Lord relented as Moses reminded him of his love for the patriarchs so appeal to god's nature as you wrestle with the the difficult situations in your life and then the third thing that we do as we wrestle with god is remind god of what he said you know i didn't always get things right as a parent with my kids i tried but i didn't always get it right but i can tell you this i was careful not to lie to my kids And if I told them that we were going to do something, like if I said, we're going to go to the beach this year, we're going to find a way, we will take a trip to the beach. That was one of our our things was we would do our best to get to the beach. We lived in Tuscaloosa, and sometimes that was really hard to do. And so if it looked like the year's going to pass and we're not going to make it there, if they said, you promised we were going to go to the beach, then we were going to get to the beach. If we had to go camp in a tent on the beach, we were going to do it because I wasn't going to break a promise to my kids, well, God is a much better father than I am or any of you are, and God is not going to fail to live up to his promises. So it's important for us to know what God has promised to us. Jacob makes this kind of appeal in Genesis 32 when he prays, O oh God of my father Abraham, and of my grandfather Abraham, and of my father Isaac, you told me to return to my land and to my relatives, and you promised to treat me kindly. You hear what he's doing there? He's just being honest. God, I didn't dream this up. You're the one who led me to, to leave Laban and the place that had been home for 20 years to go back to the homeland, which seemed kind of dangerous. But you told me to do it, and you said that you would treat me kindly if I do that. Now, I'm not worthy of your faithfulness and unfailing love, but, O oh Lord, please rescue me from my brother Esau. I'm afraid that he's going to kill me. But you promised to treat me kindly and to multiply my descendants. You'd be amazed how many times in the scriptures that this is what great men and women of faith have done. To just go back to God and have honest conversation and say, Lord, I want to just tell you, I'm holding on to your promise. But I'm also reminding you of what you said. Sometimes in prayer we need to do that. In lean times, Psalm 3725 has been a, a passage that I have Referenced back to again and again. Where David says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. God, you've promised us that. The righteous aren't going to be forsaken. Our kids are not going to beg for bread. So even though we're in this situation where income has been cut and where things are really shaky for the future... We're calling on you to be faithful to what you've promised. Your word says in Psalm 37.4 that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So God, we're just asking you to be faithful to your word. Would you deliver us from the situation that we find ourselves in? And then the fourth and final thing that we learn about times of wrestling with God is in the midst of that wrestling, be sure to express your faith in God. As I said, Job and David and the examples that I already shared with you. Even in their complaint expressed faith in God. In that same passage in Job 13, verse 15, he says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. This is from a man who's watched where his kids have just died. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. So many people around him have died. So this isn't just big talk. He's just declaring I'm going to be faithful to God, even if it costs me my life. You know, for us, we we need to have a faith that even in the hardest times that we can say, you know what, even if the tests come back and say that I've got cancer, I will still trust God. Even if my spouse or my kids have a terrible car accident, I am still going to trust God. If my kids get out of control and they get hooked on drugs or get in a terrible relationship and bad things happen, I still am going to trust God. David, in the psalm that we read, Psalm 13, he concludes all those questions by saying, But I trust in your faithful love, Lord. I will be happy when you save me. That's the balance when life doesn't make sense, when it's just a struggle, and we're going, God, I hate this. I need you to come through. I feel like you've abandoned me. How long are you going to leave me in a place like this? But we always conclude that by saying, but God, I do trust you. I don't understand why things are the way they are. I don't understand why you haven't done more to to get me out of this. But I want you to know I still trust you. If I never get out of this, God, you're still faithful, you're still good, and I still trust you. This is the faith component of the complaint prayer. Trusting God no matter what life looks like. Maybe the one of the greatest examples of this in scripture is in Habakkuk 3 verses 17 to 19. Remember this is being written at a time when everything essentially in a culture hinges on enough rain falling each year so that the the crops turn out. And just one season where there's a drought, one season where the the trees don't bear fruit and where the crops don't come up come up and, and bear fruit people are going to starve people are going to die and it's in that setting that he speaks these words even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine and even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty you get the point no matter how desperate we get no matter how hungry we get yet I will still rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the rock of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. That's faith. We can be frustrated about our circumstances. We can be honest with God about our fears, our anxieties and frustrations. But ultimately, we hold on to a faith that God is steady. God is sovereign. God is good and reliable. So here's the bottom line. How do you win when you realize that you're struggling with God? What is the only winning move when you're struggling with God? There is only one. Surrender. That's the only winning move. You must choose to surrender because ultimately the thing that causes us to struggle is the need to be in control. I struggle with controlled issues. Many of you struggle with controlled issues. And this is why we wrestle with God. And surrendering to the one who truly is in control is the only wise move. Part of what's been so difficult about this current pandemic is because there is this terrible sense of a loss of control. We don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know How many times we'll be under a stay-at-home order? We don't know how it's going to impact the economy. There's so much that we don't control. We don't know how widespread the disease is going to be. There's so much that you don't control. And I would just offer this thought to you. As much as we may fear a disease like COVID-19, there's a more devastating disease that we're at risk of of catching right now than COVID-19. And it is the disease of believing That you are in control or that you need to be in control. Because as long as you live your life the way Jacob was living it, the way many of us have lived it, where we've just got to be in control, life's going to be a struggle. We're going to struggle with relationships. We're going to struggle in a lot of areas. If we've got to be in control, we'll absolutely struggle in our relationship with God. As long as you think that you have to be in control. The good thing about seasons like this is it forces us to be confronted with the reality of the matter that you're not in control. I'm not in control. I'm not in control of my marriage. I'm not in control of my health or of the economy or of the weather. I'm not in control. So the only winning move in life is to surrender to the one who is in control and who can be trusted with the control of our lives. What do you do with the stuff that's out of control? You give it to the person who has the power and the wisdom to control it. Now, one final verse in the passage that we're looking at today, Genesis 32. The 31st verse concludes the story with this. The sun rose above Jacob as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Do you remember the last thing that the Lord did in the wrestling match? He touched Jacob's hip. The, the, the muscles of the upper leg and hip are the largest and strongest muscles in the entire human body. And in this wrestling match, the last thing that the Lord did was touch the single greatest physical strength in Jacob's life and made it his greatest weakness. Why would he do that? I think, again, because that was the embodiment of this big reality in Jacob's life. Part of his M.O. was to deceive and manipulate. But when Jacob had made a big mess of things, the thing that he would always do is run away. He would use those legs to take him down the road and get away. And even as he's waiting for Esau, I am convinced That a part of what's in the back of Jacob's mind is, I hope he comes for me and not for my family. But if he comes for my family, I can at least run and maybe have a chance to get away. And when God touches Jacob at the point of his strength and of his personal security, if nothing else, I can run away again. And he says, not anymore, big boy. You'll never be able to run again. You're going to limp for the rest of your life, not because I'm mad at you and I take pleasure in your pain, but your strength is going to have to be turned to weakness so that you don't operate the way that you used to. I love you too much to leave you thinking that you can lie, manipulate, and control. And so I'm going to touch you and make sure that you walk with a limp. God will do the same thing for us. He'll touch us in that area that's been our greatest strength or been our fallback position of how we deal with things in an unhealthy way and make it so that we don't return to that again. Jacob had run away from his mistakes and responsibilities too many times and God made it where that wasn't going to be the case. So let me ask you this. What have you been running away from in life? What about your past or about your decisions or about who you are and how you've related to others have you been trying to escape from? It has been said, and rightly so, that all of God's greatest giants, the giants of the faith, walk with a limp. That you can't be greatly used by God until you've been deeply hurt somewhere in life. I wouldn't pretend to be one of God's giants, but I do know that I walk with a limp now. A lot of us do. A lot of us have had some experiences in life that have left us where we don't feel nearly as confident and able to just control and manage things, we realize we're not in control and we live with a bit of a limp because of what's happened in life. That limp hopefully leaves us at a place of depending on God and not our own strength. Would you join me as we turn to the Lord together in prayer right now? As we do that, I want to invite you to just be very honest with God. I don't know what your personal circumstances are right now, but I I suspect with God leading us to a passage like this that there are many of you who are watching and listening. This whole control thing has been an issue for some of you. The need to surrender to God is an issue for some. Some of you are living in a place, obviously, that life is a struggle and it is not making sense and if you're frustrated, frightened just uncertain about the future would you just be honest with God in this moment you don't have to offer up words that I lead you in would you just tell God exactly what you're feeling God you are good but life isn't always good or easy and it doesn't always make sense we need you We need you in seasons like what we're in right now. We need you to be an anchor. And you are that. You are good. You are loving. You are always faithful. And you're so patient and tender with us. The world is not tender with us. But you are. God, thank you that we can trust you. If today you realize that you need, maybe for the first time in your life, maybe for the first time in a long time, that you need to to tap. You need to tap out. You need to submit and say, God, I give. You, You need to be in control in my life because when I'm in control, I make a mess of things. And today I'm tapping. Jacob had to have a night that changed the way that he lived his life. And it can change in a moment of time. Why don't you let today be that kind of defining moment in your life? It really does start not with you making some bold new commitment to what you're going to do differently. It begins with a submission. Jesus, you're in control and I'm not. And I choose to submit to you and your plan and your wisdom and whatever I'm going to have to adjust as a result of that. I say yes to that without even knowing what all that will mean. Why don't you just do that now? Why don't you say, Jesus, I need you. I need you as the pilot. I need you in control. Please forgive me of my sins and screw ups. And please just take control of my life. Lead me. Change me. Change the way that I see myself. Give me a new name, a new identity, and a new way of living. God, thank you that you're so faithful. Thank you for your love and your nearness. We offer ourselves to you again in the precious name of Jesus.